0: Well, good morning once again. Hope you had a great Christmas day yesterday with your family. It's great to be with the family gathered together today. Hey, if you brought a Bible, and I trust you did, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. If you didn't bring one, somebody next to you has one. If they didn't bring one, there probably is one in the chair in front of you. If there is not, I bet you have one on your phone. So turn to Matthew, chapter 2. So there was a, a small town in the deep south. I'm not gonna say which town or which state so that you don't think badly of it. And um, they had a beautiful nativity set in the center of their town uh, by the courthouse. Everybody could drive by and see it. And there was a visitor to that town from one of the northern states who admired the nativity set and went to look at it and see the details. So he got a little bit close and he noticed that it was indeed a beautiful nativity set, but something that was really odd is that the three wise men in the nativity set were all wearing fire hats, firemen's hats. And he thought, well, that's kind of weird. So I've never seen that before. Couldn't figure it out. And uh, he was driving around town on his way out of town. He stopped at the 7-Eleven and he decided he would ask the clerk at the 7-Eleven, what's up? with the three wise men in your town with fireman hats. And um, so he asked her about it. And the clerk looked back at him as if he were as dumb as dirt and said, uh, you stupid Yankees, don't you ever read your Bible? And uh, the uh, man said, well, yeah, I actually have read the Bible before, and I'm pretty familiar with the uh, birth scene of Christ but I, and, and the Magi but I certainly don't remember them as firemen." And so she grabbed her Bible behind the counter at the 7 opened it up and jabbed her finger in it and said, "'See, it says right here, "'The three wise men came from afar.'" <laughs> well, they did come from afar, but not from afar. Now, we are studying that passage in Matthew chapter 2, and you're probably thinking, uh, Skip, um, just so you realize, Christmas is now over. Uh, Bethlehem, wise men, nativity sets, that is so yesterday. What are you doing speaking on it today? Here's why. It's because the events that we are about to read of the Magi visiting Jesus did not happen on Christmas night or Christmas Day, but it happened sometime after Christmas Day, as it says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2, now after Jesus was born. How far after, we're not sure. Perhaps at least weeks, even months Uh, Many say up to a year after Jesus was born. Most scholars kind of land between months or a year. And that is for a few reasons. Number one, Jesus had been circumcised eight days after his birth, according to the Gospels. Then Mary was purified 40 days after his birth, according to the Gospels, in which Jesus was then presented in the temple. And we read that on Christmas Eve with Simeon and Anna. And then we read here in the text, in verse 11, that Jesus and Mary and Joseph were in a house. They were living in a house. So the wise men entered a house. They didn't go to a a manger scene. They didn't go to a cave. They came to some rented house in Bethlehem. So that's why most scholars think that the wise men showed up between weeks, months, or even up to a year after his birth, which means... Uh, We should be singing, We Three Kings of Orient Are, like in the summer, if we want to be more accurate. But we probably won't do that. And besides that, Christians celebrate Christ not one day a year. We celebrate him every day of the year, all year long. And today, today, I want to consider, I want to look at how to celebrate Christmas now that Christmas is over. And to do that, we're going to take a quick look at those who adored him, sought him, the wise men in the story, the magi, and we're going to look at those who were not so wise, the unwise in the story. But you know, I say it often at Christmas time, we we kind of have the whole Christmas story messed up, and the biggest culprit to our misinformation, our disinformation, happened to be the Christmas carols that we sing. And um, probably no one in the story has had more confusion concerning them than the group that we're about to study, the Magi. And the reason that confusion surrounds them is principally because of the song we just sang, uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, It is a song written in 1857 by John Henry Hopkins, We Three Kings of Orient Are stop right there. All of that is wrong. All of that is wrong. First of all, there probably weren't three of them. Um, The only reason three is mentioned is because there were three classifications of gifts, it says, that were brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But people like that did not travel in small groups of three. They usually traveled in a large entourage of people. There were many more than three. Also, they are not kings. The Bible never says they were kings. Uh, They probably were more like astronomers, court advisors, mathematicians. Uh, Also, they're not from the Orient, as we know the Orient. They would have been from an area called Media, Media Persia, Parthia. They would be modern-day Iranians. So a more accurate song to sing would be, we huge entourage of Parthian astronomers from Iran are bearing gifts we traverse afar. But that would not have passed the songwriting committee, so we're sort of stuck with we three kings. Now, to really understand the story, I need to fill in some of the historical blanks, and I'm going to do that in the passage. Um, We want to strip away some of the baggage, uh, the tradition from the Christmas story, And let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Matthew and read a little bit down. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. who will shepherd my people Israel. Quoting right directly from the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before this event. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I want to begin with the wise men's question. These people come from the east called the Magi. They end up in Jerusalem. They sort of come from out of nowhere, it seems, in the story. They get an audience with Herod the king. Um, Their presence scares the snot out of Herod and everybody in Jerusalem because Herod is freaked out. They're freaked out. So who are they? And what was all this about? Well, over the years, A lot of baggage has been added to this simple story that we read. A lot of tradition and, as I said, misinformation has been added. Myths have developed. Uh, Some have said that these represent these three wise men, even though there weren't three, there were far more than that, that they represent the lineage of Abraham, the sons of Abraham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, In the Middle Ages, somebody decided to give them names, even though they are not named. But their names that came in the Middle Ages were Gasper, Balthazar, and Melchior. Some of you have heard those names before. All of this is added. Marco Polo even said that he knew of the Persian village from which the wise men began their journey. In the 12th century, a German bishop named Reinald of Cologne claimed to have found the wise men's skulls. And he said that he knew they were the three magi because the eyes were still in their sockets, sockets and they were fixed toward Jerusalem. All of that nonsense that is added as time goes on. It simply says wise men from the east. The term wise men is the Greek word magoi. Magoi is the term in Greek where we in English get our term the magi. History tells us the Magi were from ancient Medo Persia. And one of the historians from antiquity, named Herodotus, a Greek historian, said they were a priestly caste of Medes. They were from Parthia and Mesopotamia. And that at one point they tried to overthrow the Persian government, they failed. And when they failed, they simply became priests, that is, advisors to the kings. They were, according to history, skilled in philosophy, skilled in science, regarded as wise. They were interpreters of dreams. And because of their knowledge and their wisdom, they influenced kings, governments. Governors, governments hired them. They were kingmakers. That's what they were seen as. They were ones who would identify and crown kings. They were ancient Gentile kingmakers. Now, the religious system they come from is interesting. I don't know if you know much about world religion, but there's an ancient Persian religion called Zoroastrianism. And what makes that significant, and that's what they were, they were Zoroastrians probably. Zoroastrianism in Persia, they were monotheistic. That made them very singular because most cultures were polytheistic. They worshiped many gods, but these were monotheistic. They worshiped one God, and the God they worshiped was somebody called Ahura Mazda. But we know of the Magi, if we are Bible students, because if you read the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has bad dreams. And he has people around him who are the highest ranking officials in the Babylonian court. They are his wise men. They are his magi. The magi were in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that a Jewish boy grew up in Babylon who became the head of the magi because he was able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. What was his name? Daniel. Daniel the prophet grew up And because he saved the bacon of the wise men, saved their lives, because he interpreted the dream, he became the chief of the magi. So look again at verse 2. Here's the question they ask. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Here's a question for you. Why on earth would Gentile kingmakers from that part of the world come all the way to Jerusalem to ask about a Jewish monarch? A Jewish king. Answer, Daniel must have primed their pump. Daniel must have given information to their predecessors, and he did. If you read the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about the Messiah coming, that he will be the king, the ruler over the Jews, eventually over the whole world, as it says in Daniel chapter 9. And we know that the Jewish people had been in Babylon a long time, even after the captivity After that was over, they stayed and there were copies of the Scriptures in Babylon that had been left in Babylon. And I can picture the wise men, the Magi, combing through those texts of Scriptures and finding significant ones, like in Numbers chapter 24, which says, a star will come from Jacob, a ruler will rise from Israel. I can see him making notes on that. Or Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the shadow of death, on them a great light has shined. Or Isaiah chapter 60, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. I imagine they looked at that and some of the other predictions, and they knew that a Jewish king who would rule was going to be born. They applied their math, their astronomy to that. The question comes every time this passage is read, what is the star of Bethlehem? And it's a fun question because nobody really knows the answer to it every year on TV. There's some TV documentary, some special, where they interview a scientist who says this and another says that and another says something else. And you go through the whole program and then you come out the other end of the program having watched it still not knowing what it is. So there's a lot of different explanations. Alfred Edersheim, the Hebrew scholar, said he thinks it was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces, maybe. Others say it was a supernova, you know that's a star that explodes and continues to emit light for weeks and even months. Some say it was a comet in the Earth's rotation. Others say a low hanging luminous meteor. What it was exactly is inconsequential. What's most important and the point of the story is that even foreigners were aware of a significant birth that had taken place? Even foreign kingmakers made a long journey because even they knew that something significant happened. And what's also significant is that this star provided sort of like a GPS system for these astronomers from Parthia a GPS system, a global positioning system, some way to direct their steps, and they made it all the way toward Bethlehem, which is only five miles away from Jerusalem. And they asked the question. So they asked the question, following the star, where is he? We've been studying about this for years. Our pump has been primed by Daniel. We've been expecting a Jewish king. Where is he who's been born, king of the Jews? So that's the wise men's question. Let's look at the foolish men's reaction to that. First of all, Herod the king. It says, when Herod the king, verse 3, heard this. He was troubled. Now, the word troubled literally means agitated. Shaken to the core. Deeply perturbed. Here's, Here's a better translation. He freaked out. Here's Herod the king in his palace, freaking out because this huge entourage of Parthian, Median, Iranian astronomers show up and they've been tracking something and they're saying, okay, where is he? Where's who? The the king who's been born. The king? Yeah, the Jewish-born king of the Jews. That's why Herod freaked out. Because when he heard that, that there's a king of the Jews born, everything in his competitive nature rose to the surface. You know, insecure people are easily threatened. Um, If somebody's prettier than they are, if somebody's smarter than they are, if somebody's more capable or earns more money, insecure people don't do well with competition. Herod was now in competition. Now here's a little background on Herod. Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomite from next door, from the area of Jordan. He was an Idumean. His dad, Antipater was his name, had helped out Rome, and because his dad, Antipater, helped out Rome, Julius Caesar let his dad rule Judea. Eventually his dad died, he took over. Herod the Great, he is called. And Herod the Great was allowed by Rome to take a very important title to himself the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. Herod is called the king of the Jews. So these people from the east come and go, well, where is he? The the, the king of the Jews. What, what, what? He didn't like competition. That's why you read later on, Herod wants to kill every baby in that region. Um, He held tightly to the title king of the Jews. You may not know this about Herod, but uh, history remembers him as cruel and paranoid. Did you know that Herod killed one of his wives, Miriamne, killed his father-in-law? Some of you go, well, I understand that. No, no, no. He, under, he killed his wife, he killed his father-in-law, and he killed two of his sons, lest his sons take over his throne. He didn't like competition. There was a saying that said, it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be Herod's son. In fact, when Herod was toward the end of his life and he was failing in his health, he was very, very sick and he knew he was going to die. He had all of the prominent citizens of Jerusalem arrested and incarcerated and the order was given. He said, when I die, I want all of them killed. And the reason being is he knew that when he died, nobody would shed a tear, but he wanted to make sure that when he died, there would be weeping heard in Jerusalem. That's how nuts he was. So these magi come and they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And uh, he says, well, I'd like to have more information on that. Tell me where he is when you find him so I can worship him too. So that's Herod the king. Let's look at another group, the, the chief priests and the scribes. Now he goes to them, Herod does, and says, hey, where is this king of the Jews going to be born? And you'll notice in verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah. They they didn't have to pause. They didn't have to say, wait a minute, let me look that up on Google. They knew instinctively the prophecies of the Old Testament and could, at a snap of the finger, give the answer. In Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, because it says, it is written of him by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, these are the theological religious elite of the day. They are the temple hierarchy. They are the bigwigs religiously. And what's amazing is they knew the messianic expectations of the people of Judah. They knew where the Messiah was to be born. They could quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. What's amazing to me is they wouldn't get up and check it out. They could quote the scripture, but they wouldn't move their feet. Je- Bethlehem is just really um, a suburb of Jerusalem. I've bicycled and even almost walked to Bethlehem from Jerusalem, it's that close so why didn't they go check it out? It's only a five-mile walk. I mean, the Magi had been traveling for months at their own expense from afar, from afar, and had made it all the way to Judea, and, and, and these sluggards can't even get to their little religious feet and walk a few miles to see what happens. It reminds me of a scripture in Amos chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Woe to those who are complacent in Zion. They're in Zion. They're in Jerusalem, but they're so apathetic. They're so complacent. They're at ease in Zion. There's a lesson there, you know. Some people think they know enough Bible. They've heard enough of the Bible stories. In fact, some people know a lot. Bible stuff, and they even study it, and they analyze it, and they look at it in the original language, and they, they chart it all out. They do everything except obey it. They don't do it. That is this group of people. Even in the church, some have been inoculated with a mild form of Christianity so as to render them immune from the real thing. Complacent in Zion. And yet some who are in that condition will even brag about it. Well, at least I'm not a fanatic. <laughs> I don't take this thing overboard. Well, I've always found it's much easier to cool down a fanatic than it is to warm up a corpse. These people were spiritually dead, even though they were the priests and should have known better. So that's the foolish men in the story. We looked at the wise men and their question, the foolish men and their Reaction. Let me, let me close with this, the proper adoration. Now, the story goes in verse 9, when they heard the king, that's Herod, they departed. They left Jerusalem. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Probably jumping up and down a little bit, hooting it up. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child, not a baby anymore, a child, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Whatever sort of wise men they were before this, now they're really wise men. Now they're really showing their wisdom. Now again, notice, they come into the house not a manger, as the Christmas card depicts, the magi in the background on Christmas Eve coming in. This is now a rented house somewhere in the environment of ancient Bethlehem. And what I want you to make a note of is that they worshipped him before they gave him their gifts. You might even say their gifts were part of their worship, certainly. But it says in the text, they worshiped him and then they gave him their gifts. They gave themselves first and then they gave their gifts to him. And I just want to say to you, that's what God is interested in. He's more interested in your heart than in your financial year end gift. Not that gifts, there's nothing wrong with giving to the Lord, and we encourage that. But God knows that when He has your heart, then He has you, all of you. And so they did that. They understood that. They gave themselves first, and then they gave their gifts. Now, what gifts did they give? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, we understand, because gold is the metal of kings. It was customary, especially in antiquity, that if you approach a king, you must always bear a gift. You bring a gift when you come to a king. You don't just show up in the court and go, yo, what's up? You got to bring something. And typically you bring for a king something made out of gold. Gold would be a very typical gift to give to an ancient king. And since Matthew's theme, the theme of the gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus as the king of the Jews, it would only make sense that Matthew would be the one that would include the story of Gentile kingmakers giving to that young child a gift of gold, the Medal of Kings. A second-century theologian by the name of Tertullian sees this as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, which says, The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Interesting text of Scripture. Interesting prediction. The wealth of the Gentiles, and this is Gentile wealth, and these are Gentile kingmakers astronomers who have given him wealth, gold. Now, one thing we know about Joseph and Mary, they were, they were poor. They were in abject poverty. They were dirt poor. We know that because when they come to bring Jesus to the temple and present him with Simeon and Anna, they bring the gift of two birds. And two birds, two pigeons, two turtle doves, uh, is what only the poorest of the poor would bring. Normal people bring a lamb. They couldn't afford a lamb. But now they can. Now they have gold. And it's my guess that this was the financial capability that enabled Joseph to take Mary and Jesus all the way down to Egypt and start all over again. Now they had the finances to be able to fund that trip. So gold is the first gift. Second gift is frankincense. Now frankincense, it's incense. But frankincense is a very expensive fragrance, or it was in that day a very expensive fragrance from the East, but in Judaism, it was, it was a spice that was used by the Jewish priesthood. The Jewish priesthood for the meal offering would include frankincense in that meal offering. And I think that's significant because it reminds us Jesus is our great high priest I don't know if you remember this, but in the Old Testament it was Job, right in the midst of his worst suffering, that he cried out for a mediator. He said, oh, I wish there was somebody who could lay his hand on God and lay his hand on me, somebody who could mediate between humanity and heaven and bring us together. He cried out for a priest who could do that. Jesus became our great high priest, and the New Testament calls him that. So gold, frankincense. And then you notice that the third gift is the gift of myrrh. This is the weirdest gift of the three. Gold, we understand. Frankincense, yeah. But myrrh was odd because of how it was used during that time. Most often, myrrh, was, myrrh served two purposes, typically. It was mixed with wine and used as an anesthetic to take away the pain. If a person had chronic pain or episodic pain, that, that mixture was given to that patient, that person to dull the pain. They tried to give that to Jesus when he was suffering on the cross, and he wouldn't take it. Also, myrrh, when it was mixed not with wine but with aloes, it was used to embalm the dead. If you know your Bible, it says that they took 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and the idea is that you take the burial cloths and you soak it in that mixture and you wrap the body, and that would take away the stench when you put that body in a a tomb and it begins to decompose. And so they did that. It was used to take away pain, and it was used to embalm the dead. So can I just say that's a weird gift to give a baby? Here we are from the East, we'd like to give you a gift. And they open it up, oh, thank you, embalming fluid, what we've always wanted. I was going to say, talk about a gift that balms. This is a gift that embalms. But can I tell you that it makes perfect sense? Remember what the angel said to Joseph. Remember what the angel said to Mary. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. How did he save people from sins? By going to the place where myrrh was most often used to embalm. So something else that I think would be helpful for you to know, the rabbis always associated myrrh, not just with death, but get this, sacrificial death. When a rabbi thought of myrrh, a rabbi thought of sacrificial death because the Hebrew word for myrrh is the word mor, mor, M-O-R, we would translate it. So the rabbis would connect the term myrrh with Abraham's sacrifice of his son on Mount Moriah. Which is exactly the same mountain Jesus actually died on. I'm telling you, there's such significance built into this story. By the way, something else about myrrh, and we'll, we'll close this off. Myrrh is a spice that only gives off its sweet scent when it's crushed. When it's crushed. And what did Isaiah the prophet say would happen to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53? 600, 650 years before he was even born. He said that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It was that death, that crushing, that was a sweet smell to God because God could say, now I can forgive you and you and you and you and you, and you all of us. Myrrh. So I want to end by asking you this question. Who in the story are you most like? Are you most like Herod? You are following the star of self. You will not allow God to interfere with your life, interfere with your plans. You don't want any competition, even God's competition. Sadly, you might even claim, like Herod, to be a worshiper. Tell me where he is that I may come and worship him. He wasn't a worshiper. And sadly, many people in pews today are still consumed with a star of self. Or are you like the religious leaders? They're following their star of religion. They have academic knowledge. They study, they analyze, but there's no real relationship with God. It's not real. It's not actual in their lives. They knew the Bible. They knew prophecy. They knew the birthplace. They had the right answer, but they had the wrong action. Or, number three, are you like the Magi? The Magi followed the star of Christ. They took it as a sign, and they came, and they, these kingmakers, these these court uh, entrepreneurs, these influencers of governments came and bowed humbly and they worshipped him. They gave themselves. I love the bumper sticker. You've seen it for years on the back of some cars that says, wise men still seek him. Are you a wise man, a wise woman? And I just want to close on this note. Look at verse 12 really quickly. It says, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod they departed for their own country another way. Now I know what that actually means. It actually means they took a different route home, right They got warned don 't go back to Jerusalem, Harold kill you so they they just took another route home. But I also want to say, just let that verse seep into your heart as we close because that 's what happens when any person has an encounter with Christ, when they actually come into contact with Christ, they leave differently than they come. They go a different way. They leave a different way. If any man is in Christ, the Bible says, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. That's a promise for you. That's a promise for you. Only God can do what you need to be done in life only god can fulfill your wildest dreams of peace and forgiveness and a clean slate and a purpose and a reason to live so let him be wise give yourself worship before him father thank you for this last weekend of the year where we can focus on these great truths we have focused on a few of them leading into the season on Christmas Eve and now this. Father, we thank you for the great example of these magi. Strange group of people, huge entourage. No wonder Jerusalem, even the whole city, the population was perturbed and anxious and agitated because of their presence. Something was happening they should have known about and they didn't, even in their religion and religiosity. They were basically clueless. I pray, Father, that we would live in close contact with you, encounter you, and grow to love you, and serve you. So, Father, we we give ourselves to you, not only in the closing part of the year, but to welcome in the new year. We're so thankful for your work on our behalf. You give us a purpose and a reason to live. I pray for someone who may be here this morning and they've opened up gifts, at Christmas, but they haven't received the greatest gift of all that is the gift of your son and his salvation for them. If that happens to be you right now, you can just utter a simple prayer right where you are and just invite him in. Just say, Lord, take me. Just say that to him. Just say something like, Lord, take me. I give myself to you. I admit I failed, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus came and died and bled for me and rose for me. And I turn from my past. I turn to you as my Savior. I want to follow you as my Lord. Help me. Help me. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you email us at mystory@calvarynm.church at and just a reminder you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give thank you for joining us for this teaching from calvary church